Section 16 of The House Behind the Cedars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The House Behind the Cedars by Charles W. Chestnut. Section 16. The Bottom Falls Out. The first effect of Tryon's discovery was, figuratively speaking, to knock the bottom out of things for him. It was much as if a boat on which he had been floating smoothly down the stream of pleasure had sunk suddenly and left him struggling in deep waters. The full realization of the truth, which followed speedily, had for the moment reversed his mental attitude toward her, and love and yearning had given place to anger and disgust. His agitation could hardly have escaped notice had not the doctor's attention and that of the crowd that quickly gathered been absorbed by the young woman who had fallen. During the time occupied in carrying her into the drug store, restoring her to consciousness, and sending her home in a carriage, Tryon had time to recover in some degree his self-possession. When Rena had been taken home, he slipped away for a long walk, after which he called at Judge Strait's office and received the judge's report upon the matter presented. Judge Strait had found the claim, in his opinion, a good one. He had discovered property from which, in case the claim were allowed, the amount might be realized. The judge, who had already been informed of the incident at the drug store, observed Tryon's preoccupation and guessed shrewdly at its cause, but gave no sign. Tryon left the matter of the note unreservedly in the lawyer's hands with instructions to communicate to him any further developments. Returning to the doctor's office, Tryon listened to that genial gentleman's comments on the accident, his own concern in which he, by a great effort, was able to conceal. The doctor insisted upon his returning to the hill for supper. Tryon pleaded illness. The doctor was solicitous, felt his pulse, examined his tongue, pronounced him feverish, and prescribed a sedative. Tryon sought refuge in his room at the hotel, from which he did not emerge again until morning. His emotions were varied and stormy. At first he could see nothing but the fraud of which he had been made the victim. A negro girl had been foisted upon him for a white woman, and he had almost committed the unpardonable sin against his race of marrying her. Such a step, he felt, would have been criminal at any time. It would have been the most odious treachery at this epoch when his people had been subjugated and humiliated by the northern invaders, who had preached negro equality and abolished the wholesome laws decreeing the separation of the races. But no southerner who loved his poor, downtrodden country or his race, the proud Anglo-Saxon race, which traced the clear stream of its blood to the cavaliers of England, could tolerate the idea that even in distant generations that unsullied current could be polluted by the blood of slaves. The very thought was an insult to the white people of the South. For Tryon's liberality, of which he had spoken so nobly and so sincerely, had been confined unconsciously, and as a matter of course, within the boundaries of his own race. The Southern mind, in discussing abstract questions relative to humanity, makes always, consciously or unconsciously, the mental reservation that the conclusions reached do not apply to the Negro unless they can be made to harmonize with the customs of the country. 
but reasoning thus was not without effect upon a mind by nature reasonable above the average tryon's race impulse and social prejudice had carried him too far and the swing of the mental pendulum brought his thoughts rapidly back in the opposite direction tossing uneasily on the bed where he had thrown himself down without undressing the air of the room oppressed him and he threw open the window the cool night air calmed his throbbing pulses the moonlight streaming through the window flooded the room with a soft light in which he seemed to see rena standing before him as she had appeared that afternoon gazing at him with eyes that implored charity and forgiveness he burst into tears bitter tears that strained his heartstrings he was only a youth she was his first love and he had lost her forever she was worse than dead to him for if he had seen her lying in her shroud before him he could at least have cherished her memory now even this consolation was denied him the town clock which so long as it was wound up regularly wrecked nothing of love or hate joy or sorrow solemnly tolled out the hour of midnight and sounded the knell of his lost love lost she was as though she had never been as she had indeed had no right to be he resolutely determined to banish her image from his mind see her again he could not it would be painful to them both it could be productive of no good to either he had felt the power and charm of love and no ordinary shook could have loosened its hold but this catastrophe which had so rudely swept away the groundwork of his passion had stirred into new life all the slumbering pride of race and ancestry which characterized his caste how much of this sensitive superiority was essential and how much accidental how much of it was due to the ever-suggested comparison with a servile race how much of it was ignorance and self-conceit to what extent the boasted purity of his race would have been contaminated by the fair woman whose image filled his memory of these things he never thought he was not influenced by sordid considerations he would have denied that his course was controlled by any narrow prudence if rena had been white pure white for in his creed there was no compromise he would have braved any danger for her sake had she been merely of illegitimate birth he would have overlooked the bar sinister had her people been simply poor and of low estate he would have brushed aside mere worldly considerations and would have bravely sacrificed convention for love for his liberality was not a mere form of words but the one objection which he could not overlook was unhappily the one that applied to the only woman who had as yet moved his heart he tried to be angry with her but after the first hour he found it impossible he was a man of too much imagination not to be able to put himself in some measure at least in her place to perceive that for her the step which had placed her in tryon's world was the working out of nature's great law of self-preservation for which he could not blame her but for the sheerest accident no rather but for a providential interference he would have married her and might have gone to the grave unconscious that she was other than she seemed the clock struck the hour of two with a shiver he closed the window undressed by the moonlight drew down the shade and went to bed he fell into an unquiet slumber and dreamed again of rena he must learn to control his waking thoughts his dreams 
could not be curbed. In that realm, Rena's image was for many a day to remain supreme. He dreamed of her sweet smile, her soft touch, her gentle voice. In all her fair young beauty she stood before him, and then by some hellish magic she was slowly transformed into a hideous black hag. With agonized eyes he watched her beautiful tresses become mere wisps of coarse wool, wrapped round with dingy cotton strings. He saw her clear eyes grow bloodshot, her ivory teeth turned to unwholesome fangs. With a shudder he awoke, to find the cold gray dawn of a rainy day stealing through the window. He rose, dressed himself, went down to breakfast, then entered the writing-room and penned a letter which, after reading it over, he tore into small pieces and threw into the waste-basket. A second shared the same fate. Giving up the task, he left the hotel and walked down to Dr. Green's office. "'Is the doctor in?' he asked of the colored attendant. "'No, sir,' replied the man. "'He's gone to see the young colored gal what fainted when the doctor was with you yesterday.' Tryon sat down at the doctor's desk and hastily scrawled a note, stating that business compelled his immediate departure. He thanked the doctor for courtesies extended and left his regards for the ladies. Returning to the hotel, he paid his bill and took a hack for the wharf, from which a boat was due to leave at nine o'clock. As the hack drove down Front Street, Tryon noted idly the houses that lined the street. When he reached the sordid district in the lower part of the town, there was nothing to attract his attention until the carriage came abreast of a row of cedar trees, beyond which could be seen the upper part of a large house with dormer windows. Before the gate stood a horse and buggy, which Tryon thought he recognized as Dr. Green's. He leaned forward and addressed the driver. "'Can you tell me who lives there?' Tryon asked, pointing to the house. "'A colored woman, sir.' the man replied, touching his hat. Miss Molly Walden and her daughter Rena. The vivid impression he received of this house and the spectre that rose before him of a pale, broken-hearted girl within its gray walls, weeping for a lost lover and a vanished dream of happiness, did not argue well for Tryon's future peace of mind. Rena's image was not to be easily expelled from his heart, for the laws of nature are higher and more potent than merely human institutions, and upon anything like a fair field are likely to win in the long run. End of section 16. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.